Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Millen Sharma Show. I'm your host, Millen, and today our guest is Doug Crow, who is an investor, brand specialist, and accomplished writer to the Chicago Tribune, Daily Herald, MSM Money, Yahoo Finance, and the Seattle Times. Uh, he's authored several number one bestselling books, and he's been featured in Bloomberg, CBS News, and the Daily Cafe. Uh, he created the Real Estate Coach on ABC Radio in Chicago so years years back, and he wrote the Kindle a Kindle book, Seven Secrets of Broadcast Excellence. He's produced and published best-selling books while marketing on the largest infomercial network in the country, or producing blockbuster Hollywood movies. And if that's not enough, he's an avid scuba diver, <laughs> instrument-rated private pilot. Yes photographer magician which that sounds really fun that's interesting that's and cool. uh <laughs> and father of three so uh welcome to the show uh doug crow it's great to have you on here thank you so much milan great to be here um uh, you know before we go forward um yeah. it's, it's pronounced millen just for millen excuse me i'm sorry milan sounds sexier i think you should change it but i'll go with millen <laughs> all right <laughs> cool cool um so yeah so just real quick um pretty much your your top the top things about you is an investor brand specialist. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw that you pretty much launched uh, the organization or called Author Your Brand. Yes. Um, which basically, from what I saw, it's aims to organize an author and publish crafted books for CEOs and entrepreneurs. Correct. So this is I honestly thought I never really heard of this. This is pretty unique to me. So I'm just curious. Um, how, how did you really come up with this idea? of doing this for people and young, young entrepreneurs that like how can books really help them propel like what what is this need that really uh people needed because well, a lot of people want it there's a need then there's a story which would you which one to hear uh story first story story, story first okay so the story it goes back there's a couple of layers to it which might be interesting to your your listeners we'll see um, but I, I got involved in, I used to be 20 years as a real estate investor and radio host, whatnot. And at the big crash, you know, I'm a boo phase, 19 foreclosures, you know, bankruptcy, divorce, uh -huh. depression. It was just a mess, right? 2008 was not kind to a lot of people, hmm. but in that muck of depression and whatnot, during my little boo phase, I wrote a book and the book sucked, right? It was just awful. Hmm. So I, uh, I went back to some of the people I had the radio. I had on some people we may know, like Robert Kiyosaki, Laurel Langmire, some people that are pretty famous. And so how'd you guys do this book thing? And they said, well, we don't write. We're authors, but we're not writers. Writers takes a lot of time. So we had ghostwriters. And so the more I started investigating the ghostwriting world, I realized there's lots of different methods to capturing a person's voice, their personality, their style, or pacing, the way they want to communicate and capturing it and putting it into a book. So we developed a very unique system. We've got a journalist, ghostwriter, editor, and proofer that work in conjunction with the author, because they aren't authors, they're words, and, but they don't have to write. They just talk to journalists right, and right. communicate things. And the good journalists, they ask questions that writers don't ask themselves. And that's the reason I, when I look at like the, a few times I've written books and they're like, you know, they're okay. But when a journalist interviews me, He's going to ask questions that the reader wants to know. So it's a much deeper, more broad-based conversation, which makes it for a better book. So we use a, a ghostwriting, you know, we create our own ghostwriting system. And I've got a couple of journalists and a dozen or half, almost a little over half a dozen ghostwriters, a couple of editors and proofers to package up books for our clients. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I saw you, you were... You shared it. You had the honor to share the stage with Robert Kiyosaki and yeah. obviously Bill Walsh, several other people. Yeah. What, um, what was that really about? Because it, it was kind of broad, but was that, yeah. was that like a occasional it's, thing or what was that exactly? It was a one off, right? I mean, everyone, everyone um, uses celebrity branding to elevate their own brand, right? So when I was with Kiyosaki, um, I had paid for a booth at some expo. But when he invited the guys who had breakout rooms onto the stage, he talked to me the most because I had a really great topic about real estate. So we talked for, you know, less than 30 seconds. But because of what he said on stage, when I went to my breakout room, there's all these people outside the door. I'm like, how come they haven't opened the doors up yet? 
And as I go around the corner, the doors were opened. It was standing room only. Like a third of the people wow. from the conference were like wanting to hear me speak because of what he said, not because of me. And because of that, we had like 500 people in this breakout room. It was my very first time where I was doing a large public speaking event where I had to sell from the stage. I'd never sold from the stage before. I just loved talking, communicating, but selling my program, oh, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and it was evident in the fact that 500 people in the first 50 minutes were glued to their seats, taking notes, doing great. As soon as I started talking about my program, my doing, my energy dropped, I got nervous, and people started getting up and leaving. And wow. when I'm all done with my pitch, there's like, like 20 people in the room. And it's really depressing to be speaker and have people stand up during your talk and leave. Um, so it was kind of sad at that point. But 24 hours later, when I booked, you know, $30,000 worth of, you know, coaching, it was okay. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I saw that you were the uh, keynote speaker for obviously several topics on uh, LinkedIn I saw. Uh, I'm curious. How trained are you with public speaking? Because I know you were from college. You it says BS in like speech, which is kind of unique. Yeah, I didn't really. Right. <laughs> I, I'd love to learn more about that. What what that really is about? Like it's like radio speech, something like that. So I'm just yeah. curious to hear about. Nothing happened. Nothing happened in college. I was all behind the scenes in college. What okay. really happened was, um, as a young man, I was the um, I was the nerd. I was the second to last kid picked in every single gym class for athletics because I just sucked. <laughs> And I was shy and timid and kind of a dork, right? I was a geek. But my sophomore year in high school, you know, they have these events coming on. And there was um, about 12 to 1,300 kids in our whole high school. And a company called Junior Achievement came in to speak. Hey, we're going to thing about starting your own business as a, as a high school kid. And come on and join us. And, like, nobody did it. Like, in my entire class of 354 people, only one person stood up and said, I want to spend a night, one night every week, and go learn how to do a business. That was me. <laughs> so okay. I joined Junior Achievement as a high school kid. And one of the perks of that was taking the Dale Carnegie course in human relations mm. and public speaking. And the dorky, awkward kid became class president, homecoming king, everything within like two years. So wow. I learned. I learned to love... And uh, appreciate speaking from the stage. It's that's why actors do. I mean, they're just they're they're an extreme, right? Because they're like you know, changing their personality, their characters. I'm just being right. myself, enjoying. But I love um, communicating and speaking from the stage. It's a it's a real thrill. I was kind of good at it, but I wasn't always good at it. I had to learn it in high school. The the degree in speech was all, you know, radio and television and film uh, training. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what what did you really want to do as your passion going into college compared to what you do now? Like, is it, <laughs> did it? Because I I see so many stories where it's people yeah, changing their majors, but then even if they stick with a major, you know, I, I at least from from what I see, a lot of people deviate from that as they get older. So I'm just curious, what what was your really passion after high school and all it, that? It's more true now than it was back in the '80s. But I'll tell you this. Um, in high school, I had a Super 8 camera. You know, you know what a film camera is? Where they actually had like film going through it. It's like you know, the movie Super 8, right? You know okay. the movie? Yes. That was, that was in the 70s, right? That was me. That was when I watched that movie. Like, oh my God, Spielberg like was spying on me in Ohio. We had a Super 8 camera. We're doing these scenes. We, you know, did James Bond reenactments with cars and dummies. It was crazy. <laughs> so I loved the idea of making movies. And I go to college at Northwestern and studied radio, television, and film and studied that, that craft for four years. And when I got out, I'm like, wow, okay, I'm in Ohio. Um, I took one trip to California for a week, and no disrespect to any of your listeners from California, but it wasn't me. I just didn't feel the vibe. Right? It's a much different vibe than the Midwest. So I stayed in the Midwest. I worked at... Um, ABC in Cleveland for a year or less and uh, worked at a TV station. And, you know, it was okay. I loved the media. I loved, as you know, if you found out, you know, audio, video, all the technical side. Mm -hmm. But a guy came in one day for an interview for the morning show there. His name was Robert Allen. Robert Allen wrote No Money Down, and he's a big real estate guy and internet marketing before it was cool. 
Okay. After his interview, I went up to him and said, hey, Mr. Allen, this is a really cool thing. How do you get all this real estate stuff, education? Oh, come to my webinar, or my, I'm sorry, my seminar this weekend. It's, uh, this is back in the 80s. It's um, $5,000 for two days. I'm like, man, I make three bucks and 10 cents an hour here. I, I can't do that. And to his credit, he says, well, just go to the library and check out my book then. You know, he was he's like, hey, take care of the kids. So I went to the library, got through half of his book, no money down, and then went to the bookstore and bought it. Hardcover book, $12.50. Mm. Um, a year, yeah, it took me a year to go through the book and, and get nervous about it, but I finally started buying real estate. And I bought, you know, over 100 houses and apartments and things like that. It was a lot of fun. Wow. Okay. So, and, okay. yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I would have to think that just starting that would be, is probably the, one of the hardest steps is actually just get starting, like buying the first house and all of that, because I mean, you're a beginner and everything, right? Like, uh, Millen, <laughs> I was actually a waiter. I was making, you know, two bucks an hour salary wow. plus tips as a waiter, but I read his book, no money down. I don't need money to buy a property. I can buy something. And if any of your listeners are in Chicago, they'll, they'll appreciate the story. I'm like, all right, great. I'm going to go ahead and just practice making offers on real estate. And I made an offer in this four unit building for like $80,000 at the time. And like, wow. And uh, they accepted it. And I'm like, now what do I do? I got to go find a bank financing and down payment. So I'm like, <gasps> I'm going to practice getting out of the deal. So I wrote a letter and used my legal thing <laughs> to get out of this deal for $80,000. And I waited a few more months, started learning more and practicing. I'm like, I can buy this other one, cheaper property, not in Chicago, in a suburb for $66,000. And I bought it with a lease option where I actually leased the entire building for a year, managed it, and then took the, um, the lease payments that I made, used it towards a down payment, so it was no money down. Hmm. So it sounds like a good deal because I bought it for 66, sold it for, I don't know, 80 uh, something. Um, make some money in the, along the, along the time for the 18 months that I held it, um, learned a lot. So it looked like a good deal. Like, Hey, 66 sold for 80 something. And, uh, you did all right for your first property. But then I went back years later and I went and saw the property that I turned down for $80,000 in Chicago in the eighties. Mm -hmm. You know where that property right. was? <laughs> a little suburb called Lincoln Park. Wow. That property, that property uh, five years later, double, maybe triple. I'm sure it's, you know, easily close to a million dollars now in Lincoln Park. It's gorgeous. So, well, I thought it was really cool making, you know, what it was, 18 grand. It would have been cooler to make like a half a million. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Part of the education process, right? So, yeah. Right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's something. Uh so as far as real estate, so because I'm, I know my mother is a real is, is a realtor, but oh, as, nice. yeah. yeah. So as far as um, as far as you buying houses and all that, mm -hmm. do you, would you do something where you would buy it and then maybe flip it and sell for more, or is it more so you buy maybe a, you purchase a complex and like rent it out to a lot of people, or is it a combination of everything? You know, great I'm, question. It's... That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of strategies out there to um, engage in the real estate investment industry, and I'm a creative uh, entrepreneur, so I did almost all of them. I bought and held. I bought and flipped. I wholesaled. I sold and bought. I did um, apartment buildings. I did condo conversions. I did an office building. Um, I bought a whole subdivision off of eBay one year, 16 houses. So a lot of things are available in real estate. What I've always told myself and what I taught my students when I had a, a, a school on this was that deals are not found. They are created. So whatever you, the most important thing is the seller's motivation. If the seller's motivated and they're open-minded, you can create a deal which both people can live with. And that's what I focused on. So sometimes I bought in hell, sometimes I flipped, sometimes I rehabbed. I learned a lot about that. And when there was a dip in the real estate market in uh, 1990 something, I forget when it was, um, I didn't have anything to buy or sell. I just rehabbed for like three years. I turned into a contractor, which was fun. I got a lot of cool tools and <laughs> didn't make any money, but it was fun. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to make money in real estate. It's all just limited by your creativity. Mm, okay. So is rehab, 
what is that exactly? I don't really understand what that is. Rehabilitation. Just... You take a, 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 a beat up house and you uh, put a clean coat of paint on it and rehab it. People, um, there's a lot of pitfalls with rehabbing, man. I've seen people that's put way too much money in their property and sometimes not enough or buy the wrong property. You've got mm -hmm. to really know your costs. You've got to know what your property's worth all fixed up. And uh, I did one deal, which I was very proud of, where I was a three-bedroom condo in Chicago on the south side. And um, I had a contract on it. I said, I'll, I'll pay $100,000 for this condo. And I knew that completely rehab. It was built in like the turn of the century. There were like gas lamps in the wall, not electricity. You know, they, <laughs> it was beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I knew it would be worth about a quarter of a million dollars fixed up, but it would require an easy $40,000, $50,000 in everything, you know, windows, floors, appliances, you know, everything. We need a lot of money. So I could, you know, buy for a hundred, put 50 into it, make another hundred. That's, that was the plan. But I started thinking to myself, cause I've rehabbed a few houses at that point. I'm like, that's a lot of work. It's going to, it's going to take <laughs> six months right. and I got to sell it. Then I, I got to, you know, buy it and all that stuff. Maybe I'll just flip it. And most people try to flip up saying, here's a property. You want to buy it? What I did was I did a, um, at this time, this is much more difficult then than it is today. But I took interior pictures of the entire property and did photorealistic rehab. Where I did a before and after picture like it had already been updated. New floors, new appliances, new cabinets, oh. everything digitally. And the digital um, resolution was so good, it looked real. Then I got three quotes from contractors, got the condo documents, packaged it all into a nice portfolio, and said, you want to wholesale this property? And uh, I gave it to a guy. He had it on his desk at work. And some guy walked by and said, wow, nice rehab. He goes, hasn't rehabbed yet. Those are just the, the, uh, you know, the imaging for future. He goes, oh, <laughs> I'd like to look at that. And I sold it, you know, sight, not, well, technically sight unseen. I sold, I mean, 20 grand. On a uh, on a piece of paper, mm. I didn't touch it, and that was the wow. lesson I learned. Is like I could make twenty thousand dollars in a week or a month, whatever it took, or maybe a hundred in a year. Now a lot of people get greedy. Oh, a hundred—it's a lot more than you know ten or twenty, Doug. But yes, but mm. speed has value as well. And if I could do that five times a year, it's the same number. Right. Yeah. Like being efficient with your time and and I guess and aggravation, man. I mean, <laughs> once you start rehabbing properties, you take one wall out. There's always something behind it every single time. Uh, <laughs> right. That kind of reminds me of, uh, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with HGTV and all the all the shows they have. Yeah, it's, I I love like one of my favorites is uh, Love It or List It, where they huh? have the one guy try to have the person buy the house and then the one yeah. remodels it. But it's very cool seeing. I know if it's the same show, but they have like the digital, like you said. Of course, now it's now they do it much more, you know, sophisticated yeah. and everything. Like yeah. this is what it will look like, and in your head, you're like, I can't believe this junk's gonna look like that. <laughs> it's just, it's unbelievable. Back in the '90s when I did this, this was you know the internet wasn't even out yet. This is a way. So getting someone to digitally photorealistic imaging images, it cost me like a hundred bucks a photo. Um, nowadays, you wow. can do it on you know Fiverr for five bucks. Um, but yeah, it, and, and quality, I'm sure, is like a hundred times better now. But yeah, that's the, and that was the biggest thing that I learned is that a lot of people don't have the vision of what can be. All they see is what's in front mm -hmm. of them. And as an entrepreneur, as an investor, it's it's imperative to have the vision of the future. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm curious because uh, real estate is one of those topics where it's something that's never really taught in Right. I would say any high high school, college, you're not at least. I, I mean, I'm not in a business class, but I doubt. I never really hear my friends that are in major business. It's never really talked about. So I'm curious. Uh, what do you believe is one of the most like misunderstood, maybe concepts or preconceptions that people have about real estate when they first like like when you maybe when you maybe in your shoes and you were young that at that age yeah. you were first reading uh, Money Down. Yeah, 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 something like no that. The biggest misconception is um, people think real estate always goes up. Hmm. Okay. And that's when I got, that's when I went through. I had, you know, I had several million dollars of real estate, and one day in 2008, it all went down, right? So I know that's not true. But at that time, 
in your lifespan, in my lifespan, you know, at that point at, uh, you know, uh, you know, in my 40s, like real estate had always gone up. So it's a very safe investment. It's leveraged. It's tangible. It's not subject to the whims of um, the economy that much or um, ecosystems. It's it's a very tried and true anchor for the economy. Real estate's a benchmark for our economy. But because of that, people think, oh, it's a solid investment, provided you buy it right. So I learned my lesson pretty early on. I never lost money on real estate, maybe one deal. Um, but over the you know close to 100 properties I purchased, my general rule of thumb was to always make money when I bought, not when I sold. Now, here's what I mean by that. You don't really make the money but you understand that the value is inside the deal, not waiting for appreciation. I ran across people that buy properties in Arizona and Florida, these hot markets saying, oh yeah, it's been going up 10% a year here. I'm gonna buy now and flip it in two years and you know make all this money on a leveraged deal because a 20% increase on a $100,000 property, 20 grand, you might only have $5,000 down, <laughs> you know, 400% return. Um, so I saw people do that until it didn't work. So I learned, you know what? I'm not going to depend on appreciation. I'm going to keep that as my icing on the cake. My foundation will be I create the value either by buying low or updating the value physically. Um, there's a lot of things you can do with you know, zoning and construction and all, all that jazz. So I create the value, and then appreciation is just a bonus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, wow. So you... I didn't hear you mention that you had some, uh, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I forget the gentleman, No Money Down, the author. Is uh, the, Robert uh, Allen. Yeah, great Robert, guy. Robert Down? Is Robert it, okay. Allen is his name. Allen. Okay, Robert Allen. Um, so did you have a specific, uh, I guess, mentor or someone that was guiding you with your first purchase and, and like first getting started? Or was it more so like, I'm just going to... Pra I'm going to start practicing this skill set and just see where things go. Dude, dude, one of the one of the benefits of youth is inexperience. And the biggest benefit of youth is you're not beat up. Mm. You haven't experienced okay. a lot of loss as a young man, right? I'm 26 years old. I'm like, I can buy this property. Robert Allen says so in a book. So I made these stupid, crazy offers and a couple got accepted. But if I had been a 30 or 40 year old, I'm like, oh, that's no one's going to accept that. I've, I've been rejected too many times. That will never work. All this crust gets built on us over time. And people who are not entrepreneurs, they never get out of it. People, entrepreneurs often get beat up and their positivity will, will bring them back to, you know, abundance. Mm. But as a young guy, yeah, this is going to work. I don't have the, you know, I don't All have right. the, I'm not tainted. Um, as I got older, yeah, I, I had some, you know, setbacks in my life, you know, but <laughs> But I, I think that um, anybody, there's one thing I learned is anybody can invest in real estate if they're open-minded and creative and, you know, don't depend on one deal. Don't, don't fall in love with the deal. Fall in love with the industry. Yeah. Okay. All right. I guess uh, let's shift to something a little bit different. You, yeah. So this is my, my current business. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, sure. I guess we can go there. Yeah. yeah um, up to you. So. Yeah, so basically, so what would you say is your current business right now? Because I saw it's all through your yes. brand. Is that that's your brand? That's it. Yes. Yeah. We we create books for clients who understand the value of being a best-selling author, but do not have the time or skill to write it themselves. So we write the book, we publish it, we make them bestsellers, we put them in the media, put them on podcasts, radio, TV, get them to become what I call slightly famous in their industry, so they mm -hmm. can you know sell more of their coaching, consulting, and their business stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, anytime anyone sees a best-selling author, that has that, that catches anyone's eye automatically. So, yeah. obviously, yeah. Um, the the idea of ghostwriting, I think, is really fascinating because yeah. it's something that I feel like I would most people don't really would look into, like yeah. Robert K K Kiyosaki. That's it. Yeah. yeah, Robert Kiyosaki's book. All these people, like I would never assume that. You know, someone else did the writing portion of, of the majority of those books. Those books. That's why they call it ghostwriting because you don't know. Right. Laurel Langmeyer was very, very clear on my radio show. She said, "Oh no, I'm not a writer. I did not write this book. I hired someone." It's her words, 
It's her strategies, her tactics. Everything's in there as hers. Right, right. She never touched the computer. Right. So I'm just curious. Uh, it, I guess like this this art of ghostwriting. Yeah. Because it's very. It, it, I just think it's kind of like a almost like a secret weapon because it's basically putting your blueprint and your strategies in for to make a tangible for anybody to purchase. But at the right. same time, you're not putting your your own things on hold to do it you know like because all putting all your time into it Here, here's the thing about especially books it's one thing to hire someone to write articles or blog posts for you because that's a little bit easier to do but you got to keep someone's attention for several hours in a book even movies can't do that for four to six hours right it's like after two hours i'm i'm done so to keep someone's attention in a book requires a very high level of skill in storytelling, in uh, creating what we call open loops, where you don't, you know, you, uh, cliffhangers, not just at the cliffhanger at the ending, but like sprinkled throughout, you know, Game of Thrones did a cliffhanger at the end of every That's single right. episode. Our yeah. own news channels put a cliffhanger before a commercial break. Soap <laughs> operas were built on cliffhangers. In books, well-written books, drop those little breadcrumbs all throughout the book. And most writers I know, they don't do it. The skilled ghostwriters know that the content is secondary to the context. You really have to understand that you're, you're someone's going to read this. And if you don't hold their attention and make it a page turner, you're going to lose them. There's some stats out there on this, Millen, that 54% that, um, of books that are purchased are never opened. People just buy the cover and they don't bother opening it. Of those that are open, half are never finished. So you got a one in four shot of someone reading your book. <laughs> the point is that if you're not if you're not good at storytelling and and making a compelling nonfiction page turner, your message won't get read. Right, even doesn't matter how good it is, too. Right. So, and I think that's that's what's really fascinating because even you stated that that's why it's so important for journalists to ask the author questions that they didn't think yes. themselves because right. you might believe oh these are great skills that anyone can make money off of and everything like that. But then that person might be like, all right, I read the first 35 pages. I feel like yeah. I'm, I have a broad knowledge, eh, you know, <laughs> which is never obviously never a good thing to think that way. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. It's, so, but I, I'm just curious because you mentioned that you helped, you produced uh, blockbuster Hollywood, Hollywood movies. I saw no, that. My friends did. My friends did. That? My, my friends, friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, have, okay. I, I, I graduated. Northwestern and TV and film and um, my roommate um, and my fr my friends have done movies you've heard about you know like Failure Launch um, the the uh, DreamWorks Home um, my good friend out there produced Pretty Woman you know uh, Gary Goldstein and so that oh. I have friends in the industry mm -hmm. but I'm not I don't I, I went out there for you know a very short time like I don't want to be in that industry so right I, right but I'm still friends with a bunch of them you know we have we have jokes and I've you know, I have a couple a couple friends from college, or you know, we got in front of the camera. Um, Julie Louise Dreyfus from Seinfeld lived across the hall from me at school, and Dermot wow. Mulroney was a friend of mine. So yeah, there's a bunch of people that made it big and um, on screen, but most of my friends are behind the camera. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's one of my favorite shows, Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I love good. it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah. So one thing I guess I'd ask because you. Because I saw that you you were an accomplished writer for several different publications, pretty yes. well known, Yahoo Finance, all these things. Mm -hmm. How how do you believe? Well, not believe, but I guess how did that really help you in the next step? Because obviously, because from what I from what I've read and learned, you were in the real estate industry and then um, yeah. speaker. So how did writing really help you and go to that next step? in your career yeah you know it's funny it's um there's a people have said this i'm not the first one to say that but if i had to develop any skill as a college kid or right post-college it's speaking and writing because no matter what you do science technology medicine law manufacturing you got to talk with people so the better speaker you are great the better writer you are also great so i i love writing um but i have better writers than me on staff mm -hmm. i i after, you know, in the real estate world, I didn't have to write anything. I wrote contracts up and, and I'd, I'd review leases. Marketing-wise, though, I had to sell my, I had a, an academy where I taught investors how to, how to invest in real estate. So I had to sell that. Um, and then when, I, when the real estate market crashed and, and Doug crashed, 
Um, and I got into writing books. I loved it. I love, I love, I loved writing. And so I knew that PR was a powerful part of that. So, um, I got some credentials and I started writing for, you know, local, right? I mean, nothing, nothing big. It didn't, but some things got picked up. Syndication is weird in PR. So I would write article for, you know, Fox Reno and it got picked up or syndicated on Yahoo Finance or Bloomberg or something. So mm. over time I had, a, you know, several hundred news stories or press releases get published in a bunch of digital news outlets. Um, a couple months ago, I got my credentials to write for entrepreneur.com. So I've written just a few articles there. I mean, that's a con you know, every month I'll put, you know, two or three out there. It's a lot of fun. And Thrive Global and a couple other ones. And what that does, it does the same thing it does for anybody in any industry. And it's uh, it's called celebrity branding. You know, the reason we buy crap on Instagram from an influencer is because, oh, well, if Rihanna's using us, I'll get it. Or, you know, <laughs> so if Doug's writing for an entrepreneur, I may trust him. I guess I can trust him. It's mm -hmm. the same darn thing. Um, right. So you have your own news station. You got to use what's called earned media. I got to earn my right to publish on somebody else's platform. And the bigger the platform, more popular or respect the platform, there goes my elevation of my status as well. So mm, right. being in a, doing a press release is no big deal. Getting my news story picked up by Bloomberg was a thrill when it first happened. Writing for Entrepreneur, I'm just grateful. It's so much fun. So the more you do that and the more you get out there, you're contributing, you're, your writing improves, and you're more, you know, more respected. Yeah, I, that, obviously, that, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, just because that, that's what I try to do. But that's what I'm learning about. I'm a communication major right now, strategic oh, nice. communication and uh, psychology. And in, in my classes, obviously, digital marketing's obviously skyrocketing every second yeah. <laughs> every second yeah. i did, in my in the one class um i do a project and basically basically almost every brand you look at there's going to be some influencer wearing the shoes or talking yeah. about it and then we, we make it we have to make our own product and we're like all right we'll have celebrity a and celebrity b and you know use this shaving product and all this yeah yeah so that makes a lot of sense uh and here's here's a big difference for you on that. I, I I'm I'm yeah. studying. I keep studying stuff myself. Two or three hours a day, I'm reading books on marketing, branding, and 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 uh, you know the ecosystem of business really. And the one thing that's funny about that um, is that today's influencers are not. They're promoters, because unless you're gonna if you're gonna actually influence something, you're not influencing an action. You're influencing a habit. Apple's an influencer, right. you know. I love my iPhone, right? That's that influenced me to, to go iPhone. But if I'm on Instagram and I see a cool product promoted by one of my celebrities that I respect or like, that's just promotion, man. They call yeah. those influencers, that's fine. But I'm gonna be a little bit of an old stick in the mud here and go, eh, maybe. Yeah, that makes that it makes sense because even I see one of my uh well someone I follow, he like like a professional swimmer, yeah. like like in, a, in this in a commercial for an ad and i know he's not drinking that because i was he's a professional athlete so yeah right <laughs> it's definitely 100 percent promotion because i know like as an athlete myself like they're definitely not drinking that in the preparing for the olympics or whatever so <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense it's funny um yeah um geez that's interesting <laughs> uh, let's see oh all right, this is one thing I want to kind of talk about a little bit. Yeah, sure. um, so, what is so obviously this is kind of a a little bit of a I guess a buzzword for me because I'm not too familiar. But like, what what's the the largest infomercial network mean uh, exactly? Um, what a, that friend, a friend of mine owned a network of infomercials, right? Where he actually would produce them and use them, and he buy a lot of dead airtime around the country. And um, you know, it's 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 weird because you think like when you, when you're looking on the TV, you're like flipping through these things, right? A lot of people don't, a lot of people watch these, you know, QVC and these, these long commercials that are like a half an hour long. <laughs> and so my friend Kent started doing those and he built a network of stations around the country that had, you know, promoted all their dead time at 2 AM and, you know, 4 AM on a Sunday. So <laughs> run them because all there is is revenue. For, and he had really low cost, So he's able to go, pretty big on it right so what do you 
sell certain products exactly is that what, yeah that's, you know the sham wow the you know the uh snuggie all those things yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of fun i guess interesting well it was it was interesting <laughs> to watch I, I i actually lived with them for a year out there in california when i was doing it i'm like that's kind of cool stuff but um yeah i have you know if, if you're looking for some stories man i got plenty of stories on uh my my you know flying around the world in my in my little airplane and uh and some, oh, of, the author, yeah. some of the authors that i've worked with I got some clients yeah. that has a crazy story, so you can ask me anything you want. Yeah. Well, that I'm like, yeah, that could, that definitely slipped my head because I, you were, because you're trained as a private pilot, is mm -hmm. that correct? Okay, yeah. so because obviously, you do you still fly right now, or is that with? No, I had I had an airplane until the recession, then I gave her up. For right, that. okay, because I did see that. I didn't want to. All right, <laughs> okay. Nah, I'm I'm pretty transparent. It's not I don't hide anything. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. Yeah. So. Yeah, so basically, once you got the, everything's going well, like you know, real estate things. So what? So what really? I guess motivated you to get a plane, and well, not only get to get the plane, but I guess like actually fly it, because because of course you know people that are well off have a plane, but actually you yourself flying it. I'm yeah. just curious, like was that just a challenge you wanted to kind of do, or is that something you dreamed of? I've always but, wanted to fly. My dad was a pilot, and so you know he was a pilot in the war. I'm like, I want to be a pilot too. It's a cool. Come on. I mean, you get chicks being a pilot, right? So, um, yeah, so I wanted to fly. And uh, when I was, let's see, must have been 25, 26, bartending and working at a hospital um, in, in the AV department. I was working two jobs. And I, I have some extra money. I'm going to go get my pilot's license. So I went and started taking lessons and learned to fly. And uh, it's it's awesome. I mean, it's you know how when you have, when you, sometimes in your dreams you're flying? It's just like that. <laughs> it's so much fun. I'm a, I'm a scuba diver, so it's very similar to scuba diving, but you're you know in the air. So I, I've been flying yeah since I was you know in my 20s, and then but it comes in spurts. You know the money comes in, I fly for a while, buy an airplane, and then you know business up and down, maybe not for a little while. Mm -hmm. But I've always wanted to do it. My dad's a pilot, my brother's a pilot, um, and it was just as a kid growing up, when you're going in dad's plane somewhere, it kind of sticks with you, you know. So he had a little you know a little single engine, nothing nothing fancy, but we you know went around to. Ohio, Wisconsin, and whatnot. It was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I, I had a plane for three years. I got to fly it um, all over the country and Caribbean and uh, down near Central America. It was fun. Awesome. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I'd love to hear. Uh, you said a story from a client, you said, or or uh, was that you? This is from back. My clients are more, my clients are way more interesting than me. Uh, <laughs> Something you think is interesting that you're, you know, you think you'd like to share. Well, of course, they're all interesting, but something you think like they uh, are your head, I mean, whatever. I, I I tell people I I I've, we've done like you know a couple hundred books for athletes, politicians, criminals. Sometimes it's the same thing, but mostly they're business leaders, mm -hmm. and some of them have the most amazing journeys. I'm working with some veterans right now who've been in battle. Um, wow. One of my clients is a rocket scientist. Okay. Jeez. 15 patents. He's got a little patent you've heard of. It's a thing called GPS. One of my really? clients, one of my clients worked at NASA and invented GPS with his with his team of five people. Yeah. Jeez. That's pretty so awesome. interviewing him is like going back in time. He's like, oh yeah, I remember when I met Bobby Kennedy. I'm like, you met Bobby? Oh yeah, I met him. And the you know, the Prime Minister of India and stuff. He's just he's like Forrest Gump with like, you know, graduate yeah. college at 14. You know, he's a smart guy. So um, just interviewing these people is um, fascinating. You know, um, I, I met a guy who um, ran the largest point shaving scandal in U.S. history. Wow. He, he scammed the uh, NCAA, you know, college games for millions by, you know, making one of the players, you know, not miss a shot, but, you know, not make as many shots as he normally. He, it was a it's a fascinating story. He, he did time for it, right? So he went to jail. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I met a, uh, one of my clients. His book is not out, but he um, he had a real life. It's almost exact same scenario as the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Incredible story. So that's the one thing I love about my, 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 uh, my business and what we do. I've got another journalist, but um, I'm lucky enough to interview a lot of my clients for their books. And I love hearing what they did, what they what they've done, where they want to go in life, and most importantly, how they want to impact the world. 
my business coach looked, he listened in on some of my calls last year and uh, he listened to one call and said, wow, you're really excited about talking to this one guy. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was a really cool idea. The second call I heard, you weren't that excited. You were not rude or anything, but you were kind of flat. Oh yeah. I just want to make money with this book. I'm like, I'm <laughs> bored. He said, why do you talk to him? I'm in business. I want to, I'm in, I want to, I want more business. He said, well, if you don't talk to people you don't want to work with, I bet your business will go up. What? Yeah, yeah. I want you to start talking to half as many people and watch your business increase. I said, well, I'm paying you money every month for, to coach me. I guess I'll do what you say. <laughs> um, from 2019 to 2020 into the pandemic, right? Business went up 300%. Yeah. Wow. So I only, okay. our company does books for people, right? We help people get their message or story out. But we only work with people who have a message and a passion to make a difference in the world. You know, I'm not, you know, not super left or anything. That does not anything to do with politics. It's about making a right. difference in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 been a lot of fun for us. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to share one thing for your listeners. But there's a uh, yeah, a please. lot of people don't know if their idea is any good, or if the story is valuable enough, or people will resonate with it. There's a lot of mystery behind this book creation process. So I fixed it. I said, what if you could actually start your book with a knowledge documented that people want to read it? Guaranteed sales. Well, that'd be great. Okay. Well, let's just take a page from Procter and Gamble before they roll out a new shampoo or a new, a new, whatever it is, (laughs) they do a focus group, but Mm -hmm. authors don't think about this. Our company creates six independent book covers we do a survey, an actual data dump of 100 other books in Amazon in the same category and analyze every single three-star review in their category. Not one star, people just pissed off, and five stars, somebody's mom. But a three-star, <laughs> somebody's like read the book, has some, something constructive to offer. Mm-hmm. So we capture all those, catalog, collate, and give our clients a complete rundown on their category, what readers want, what they don't want, and feedback on their book idea. And once they mm-hmm. do this, it takes about a month or so, they're good to go. They know their idea is going to work. Or if they don't, then change it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's... It's funny. It's so, it sounds so simple, but it makes such a big difference. The, like focus group survey. Yeah, and that's what I want to offer people. If, if any of your listeners go to go.realbestseller.com, we do that for you. We'll hop on the phone, go through your idea, and do some analysis for you to give you, give you this idea. So it's go.realbestseller.com, and, and it's not like a cheat sheet. You actually, you know, fill something out and get on the phone with me, and we go through it. It's kind of fun. Right. Yeah, yeah great, great. Uh, yeah, so so basically, all right, so that's – it's great to hear about things you did in the air, but I guess – Underwater, that's you see. I guess the air is not enough. You gotta go underwater too, submerged, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? I've, I've scuba, I've scuba dived in uh, many of the oceans, um, mainly Caribbean, um, mm-hmm. um, Antarctica. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, just, I didn't scuba there. I just, I just did the polar plunge. But man, that was painful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the Caribbean is, is my favorite place to go. I've been to Australia to Great Barrier Reef. Um, mm. So it's, it's been fun. Nothing real harrowing there. I mean, there was one, um, you know, there's no, no death-defying feats in scuba. I mean, um, the airplane, I had some close calls, but not scuba diving. You know, I, I saw somebody almost almost get in trouble in scuba diving, and I, I played pranks on my diver friends when we're, you know, sw- swimming around, and we see a bunch of, like, five, six-foot barracudas, and they're, like, 20, 30 yards away. But I go out yeah. to my, 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 my dive buddy, and I take my fingers, and I, like, pinch his ankle a little bit. but that's yeah nice like having fun yeah so how uh i i'm i'm not too familiar with diving so i'm just curious you're scuba diving i'm just curious like how how long do you does you and your team like stay underwater for and like how how, yeah it depends how deep you go the deeper you go the less you can stay down because um the volume of the air actually decreases with pressure so um, if I'm at like, you know, 30, 40 feet, I can, I'm a good for an hour or so. If I go down to like 100 feet or 110 feet, like I did at the Blue Hole in Belize, it's like 12 minutes. Mm. You don't have much time because you use, use a lot more air because the volume is less. 
Um, And the worst part is on your way back up, you have to stop and wait. Uh, Because if you don't, you may have heard of a thing called the bends, right? It's called nitrogen. Um, It's it's really bad because the nitrogen bubbles are in your bloodstream and it's the most painful thing in the world. So you got to do these things called safety stops to let nitrogen out of your body as you exhale and then slowly. So you're down at the bottom at 100 feet for 12 minutes and your safety stops are like half an hour. (laughs) That's kind of boring, but yeah, uh, it's important to be safe, of course. Yeah, definitely. And so. Hmm. So would you say. What's like something really exciting you'd say with scuba diving, because obviously you're doing it all. You're, you know, you're, you're putting yourself through all this, I guess, like, you know, all this gear on and like heavy gear and everything. What What's like what, what would be the point of it? You know, like what's what makes it really exciting? Like something seeing something that most people don't see at all. Yeah. For me, it's actually communing with nature at a pretty high level. When you're scuba diving, I mean, you're not walking in the woods. We can all walk in the woods. But to go underwater for an extended period of time, you got to be a fish. And mm. scuba is, you know, scuba stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. It's the only way you can do that for extended periods of time. And so you're in this environment. And a lot of people look for the big fish. You know, I've swam with sharks before and seen big manta rays. That's all cool. But I love seeing the little things. There's so many little things you would never see, except maybe in an aquarium. And being out in the wild, underwater, um, it's, you know, I grew up, um, you know, watching, you know, it was before cable, right? I was watching Jacques Cousteau on on, uh, on, on television. And it's, a, it's a still a very raw and um, undiscovered place, the ocean. There's a lot of mystery there still. We know, we know a lot about the right. Floor and fauna, but when I go down, I'm like, wow, this is especially when you go in caves or grottos or a thing called a um, continental shelf. You go on the wall, and there's one time we're in, uh, I think it was in Cancun, and we're swimming along like you know 40, 50 feet, and then you come to this edge of this cliff, and the water is so clear, it feels like you're gonna fall, but you're underwater, you're floating, but it just drops off to like a wow. mile down. It goes down to blackness, like oh, oh I'm in the water. <laughs> Right. It's freaky for a second. But um yeah, it's 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 probably just it's just beautiful. You're floating. Um, you know, there's no cell phone, no email, you're just in nature. <laughs> right. right. And and even if you have your phone off, you don't have to worry about that underwater underwater anyway, because <laughs> no. so that's great. Yeah. Uh I that's something that's 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 a really interesting point you bring up with that because even I would argue you, if the typical walk in the woods or or on the trail or whatever, because I do I do running um, as yeah. a sport, so I know and even I've I've had my phone with music on too. But like anybody that's walking, most people you know most people either talking to somebody on the phone or calling somebody or messaging headphones. The list go, the list goes on, and I guess getting that break, you know, you don't get they won't get that break from from that external yeah. stimuli at all. That's what I do when I'm flying too. When I'm flying, I you know, there's no email or cell phone up there either. You're just you and the aircraft and the and the weather. So I guess I, I I'm more comfortable, you know, underwater or in the clouds than I am on ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. And uh, this is something that's interesting. You said you're a magician, right? Yes. 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 How how did you get into that with with every with everything else? That's is this just like a little hobby of yours or yeah? When I was like thir- thirteen years old, um, I got a book about Harry Houdini, and so right. I was fascinated with that. I learned how to be an escape artist first. You can like tie me up, handcuff me, and I can pretty much escape on it most of the time, maybe all the time. I don't know, but I learned how to be an escape artist first, which is cool. You know, I had my my family tie me up, and I would always get out of it. Could never tie me up. Um, I learned how to pick locks. I took a locksmithing course. So I learned how to pick locks. Okay. Um, so it was just a fascinating book a kid read and started doing it. But you can't make money as an escape artist, really, unless you're like David Blaine, right? So I'm just, you know, a kid <laughs> in high school. So I learned to do regular magic. And it got me on stage, right? We talked before about being out there. And it got yeah. my confidence up by speaking. And it was a lot of fun. I do kids' parties. I didn't do balloons. But I did, like, you know, magic shows for kids' parties. And, you know, it was just, it was just fun. You know, I, 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 it's been several years since I've done anything, but, mm-hmm. you know, I can still do a card trick or two. And I've got some equipment in my closet. I, you know, I can always pull it up if I have to, if I get the call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, 
I, the thing you mentioned from uh, putting yourself out there like that, I mean, it's it's crazy the transformation that someone can have from mm. from let's say you were saying you were like a nerd geek guy. Nothing wrong with being a nerd, but I'm just saying, not with the nerd part, but you know, just like closed off and all this to yeah. like being a speaker and everything like that. Like it's amazing how if someone really wants to change that, they they can make that change. They can, and I, you know, you, I, they'd love to be the self-developed person. Like anybody could change any time. Like, well, yeah, but it's much easier when you're younger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much easier when you're younger when you can um, kind of set yourself up. Uh, or if you move to a new town, you can start brand new. But if you've got existing friends and experiences in your life, change is super hard. We're not designed for change. We, we, we rebel against it every, in every cell of our being. Right, right. So to desire to do that has to be, you know, beyond motivation. It has to be something you really, you know, aren't going to do without. And in my case, you know, I just love, you know, reading stuff and doing things and just sort of evolved. Um, the Dale Carnegie course turn me from wallflower to, you know, BMOC, but, um, that was it for me. It, I, and, and you know what? It's w- weird. Cause we had kids in our class. We had like a disabled kid in the class. I mean, he, you know, he, he would, uh, cerebral palsy. Couldn't even hear him speak very well, but he's taking a speaking class with us, you know? So I could never recommend enough. The classes available. It's, a, it's an older thing, right? You know, all back in the fifties and sixties, but man, the fundamentals, Second most popular book in the world is How to Win Friends and Influence People. I, it's funny you said that. I was just, I was just about to, I was just about to get into that because when I was much more closed off in high school as well, like a really close friend of mine, he said, "Nolan, you should read this book." Yep. And I was like, I, I was like, yeah. I mean, it, I, at least I don't to get in front of a stage to read a book. So I was like, all right, sure, I'll read a book. <laughs> so, so you know, I read, so I read this, read the book. I really, I mean. Like you said, very simple things, but like when you actually, you know, read it, look at it, implement it, it's it's and makes do a it. difference. Right. It makes right. a difference, and you know, and then having those people to push you too. Like he helped me push me, you know, through different experiences. You know, I'd go to a dance, go to prom, like ask someone to go with me. Like these things that that as a as a person when I was really young, I would I would never do. But yeah, but now I mean, it's it's amazing because it's not just in that moment. You you, you it's kind of like you build yourself up almost right. incrementally like that, which is really powerful. Yeah, it is. And, yeah, the desire desire to change and improve yourself is one thing, but to change your personality or how, who you are that's huge. That's, yeah, that um, I'm not sure if it was intentional or just happened, man. I couldn't I couldn't answer that. Yeah, yeah it's. And I think I agree with you when you say it's it's difficult to do when you're older. I would say. I mean, I'm not an old person, but I <laughs> but um, I could see how it could be hard because younger people, you, you we have a lot. At least I feel like I have a lot more energy yeah. to to and more room for error, all that stuff. Like I, I spoke to someone uh, last, so I spoke to someone recently and yeah. on the on the show on the show, and she was even telling me too, you know. As a young person, like you have much more, it's it's better to make mistakes, learn from it, yeah. move forward, and things like that. Absolutely. So, right, yeah, fail yeah. faster, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I think I think this is a good place to uh, conclude. Uh, All right, sounds great. Th- thank you so much, uh, Doug Crow, for coming on. I really appreciate right. it taking the time. This is okay. a fun talk. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right.